Devarim, words, the words spoken with love for our people, words that made Moses the primary teacher of Torah in the history of our people, and the fact that Jews teach to their children and represent to the world the ideas that Moses taught is, in its own way, one of the greatest of miracles. Welcome to Bible 365, Episode 51, The Tragedy and Triumph of Moses. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. Empire of Dreams is the title of a biography of Cecil B. DeMille, the great director and creator of the epic film The Ten Commandments. The book describes a meeting, after the movie was released, between DeMille and the greatest statesman of the 20th century. Quote, In October 1957, Cecil left for Europe and some final openings for the Ten Commandments. On October 31, he met with Winston Churchill at his London residence, 28 Hyde Park Gate. Churchill was receiving guests in bed that day, with his pet parrot in attendance. DeMille related some anecdotes about the location shooting in Egypt, and then told Churchill that he thought there were similarities between him and Moses. The book tells us that DeMille said, I mean historically, no people could have been in a worse plight than when Moses stepped up and led them from Egypt, and the same with England, when Sir Winston led them to victory. The biography continues, At this, Churchill's eyes got shiny. When they shook hands to say goodbye, DeMille said he'd rather shake Churchill's hand than any man in the 20th century or before. Oh, well, then let's shake hands again, exclaimed Churchill. End quote. It is a lovely tale, and yet, while it is true that Moses did lead Israel from a sorry plight in Egypt into freedom, it is not first and foremost for this achievement that Jews remember Moses. Rather, our celebration of the greatest Jew in history centers on something else entirely. And it is a reading of Deuteronomy, with a little help from Winston Churchill, that can allow us to understand why this is so. The fifth book of the Bible, known in English as Deuteronomy, is referred to in Hebrew by the word divarim, words, a seemingly prosaic word, which actually means words. The appellation is derived from the opening verse of the book. These are the divarim, the words, which Moses spoke unto all Israel on the other side of the Jordan. In what is a little more than a month before his death, Moses stands and orates before Israel for several weeks. He is speaking not to the Israelites whom he took out of Egypt as adults. They have already died in the desert. Rather, Moses addresses their children, who have now, after 40 years of wandering, taken their parents' place and are about to enter the land of Israel. This valedictory address comprises essentially the entire book. In the first chapter, Moses reviews what occurred immediately after the Sinai revelation, the failings of the fathers of those before whom he stands the sin of the spies, the decree of death in the desert. And then in chapters 2 and 3, Moses recounts what happened 38 years after that decree of wandering, the battles on the east side of the Jordan, the preparation for the entry into the land. For much of the rest of the book, Moses will review and expand upon the laws that he has already taught Israel, and he will then conclude with a stirring song and blessings to his people. All these are part of the words, the divarim, that he uttered. And as the Midrash notes, the fact that so many words are said by Moses seems to contradict his original protestations so many years before, standing in the presence of God at the burning bush in Exodus 4.10. 
And Moses said unto the Lord, O my Lord, I am not a man of words, neither heretofore, nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant, but I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. Moses originally says that he is not a man of words, or in Hebrew, not a man of divarim. Thus, as the rabbis note, the man who said about himself that he is not a man of divarim concludes his life by giving us the longest speech in the Bible, known as divarim, because it contains thousands and thousands of Moses' words. What has happened to this man? Why is he suddenly engaged in extraordinary oratory? There are a number of ways of reconciling this, and they hinge on what precisely Moses meant when he first said about himself that he was not a man of words. Some assume that Moses had an actual speech impediment, and yet, following Sinai, he was miraculously able to elocute. This may be so, but drawing on other commentators, there is an entirely different way to understand this. That when Moses said originally that he was not a man of words, what he meant was that he was not gifted at political engagement, political speech. And here we can suggest a contrast in leaders. Churchill's success, of course, lay in part in his ability to speak to the political moment. As it was said of Churchill, he mobilized the English language and sent it into battle. But political eloquence, perhaps, was not Moses' gift. In the movie The Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston has the best lines. Moses says the most memorable words. But in the original book on which the film was based, i.e. the book of Exodus, almost certainly the best lines were oratorically announced by Aaron, Moses' brother, who has made Moses' spokesman. As we've previously seen, Moses, an elder of the Levites, is described as a political actor. It was he who, without jealousy, spoke on his brother's behalf. And strikingly, Winston Churchill, in his 1930s essay about Moses, understands Moses' self-described lack of eloquence in this way. Churchill writes how Moses, standing before God at the burning bush, quote, stipulated that he must have a spokesman. He was not himself eloquent. He could give the driving force, but he must have a competent orator, some man used to putting cases and dealing in high affairs, as his assistant. Otherwise, Churchill continues, how could he hold parley with Pharaoh and all the ministers of the only known civilization his world could show? God, Churchill continues, met all these requests. A competent politician and trained speaker in the shape of one Aaron would be provided. Moses now remembered his kinsman Aaron, with whom he had been good friends before he had to flee from Egypt. End quote. So Churchill writes, And if this is the case, this means that Moses was chosen by God not because of his gift of political cultivation and elocution. He was chosen by God, I think, because of his love for his people. Highlighted when an Egyptian taskmaster was brutally beating an Israelite, and Moses gave everything up to stand forward for his brothers and sisters. And then after the Exodus, when God himself expresses his intention to destroy Israel, to replace them with Moses' family, Moses steps forward and says, Now if you will forgive their sin, well and good, but if not, erase me from the record which you have written. Without Israel, says Moses, I do not want to be part of this story. Paradoxically, in arguing with God, Moses reveals why God chose him. 
the same man who risked himself for his brothers when threatened by the Egyptians, is also willing to sacrifice for them when they are threatened by God himself. But here is the tragedy of Moses' life. If his greatness is first made manifest in his love for his people, and if his eloquence first expresses itself, not as a political actor before Pharaoh, but in defending Israel before the Almighty, if political cultivation was not his gift, then perhaps this lack of political eloquence is made manifest in the sad fact that the people of Israel did not, for most of Moses' life, return the love that he bestowed upon Israel. We can see this, perhaps, from several striking words at the end of Moses' summation of the past 38 years, which comes at the beginning of Deuteronomy. Moses describes what occurred following the conquest of the eastern side of the Jordan. And here I'm citing parts of chapter 23, verses 23 through 26. And I pleaded with the Lord at that time, let me go over, I pray thee, and see the good land that is beyond the Jordan, that goodly hill country, and the Livanon. But the Lord refused me because of you, and hearkened not unto me. And the Lord said unto me, Let it suffice thee, speak no more unto me of this matter. So Moses tells Israel, I pleaded, va'et chanan in Hebrew. I pleaded with God to be allowed to enter the land. And God said, No, because of you. In Hebrew, lema'anchem. These verses were interpreted in a brilliant but heartbreaking way by Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik. The critical word here, he said, is va'etchanan, I pleaded, meaning Moses pleaded for himself, but Israel did not plead for him. Quote, When he was told that he would not enter the Holy Land, Moses pleaded for forgiveness. Had the people joined him in prayer, the Holy One would have been forced to respond, but they did not join. Thus, Rabbi Soloveitchik continued, we read that with tears in his eyes, Moses tells them, Vayetchanan, I prayed alone. It was not Vanitchanan, we prayed, end quote. It is a powerful point. Moses had been willing to offer himself for his people, to beseech God on their behalf. He was only one man, and he had saved, through his own prayers, an entire nation. What might have happened had an entire nation beseeched God for one man? Vayetchanan el Hashem, Moses says in Deuteronomy to Israel, I pleaded with God to let me enter the land, but God refused because of you, meaning because of your refusal to pray for me. For most of his life, Moses' self-sacrificing love for his people was not fully returned by them. But Moses' love and concern for Israel remains, and his desire to prepare Israel for what lies ahead pours out in Deuteronomy in another sort of eloquence. Here Moses is not slow of speech and not a few words. Chapter 1, verse 5. Beyond the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses began to explain the Torah. The word Torah is often translated as law, and while law is certainly central, the word Torah really means teaching and includes all that Moses says. Rules, narrative, song. All this is teaching, all this is Torah. And in Deuteronomy, Moses is fully revealed as he is remembered first and foremost by traditional Jews today as the greatest teacher of Torah in our history. In contrast to Cecil B. DeMille, who focused on Moses as Redeemer, 
we focus first on Moses as teacher. Indeed, in the Haggadah, the liturgy of the Passover Seder, all credit for the Exodus is given to God. Rabbi Soloveitchik recounted that as a child it bothered him that Moses is not really mentioned in the text. And indeed, that as a young boy he wept at how unfair it seemed to Moses, so much so that his father, Rabbi Moshe Soloveitchik, found an oblique reference to Moses in the Haggadah. And this, Rabbi Soloveitchik writes, quote, calmed my mind somewhat, but I still felt that we were committing an injustice against Moses, end quote. The truth, however, is that when we read Deuteronomy, we see that Moses himself does not really describe anything that he did in Egypt. He will review the Sinai revelation and recount the role that he played in the communication of the Ten Commandments. He will exhort Israel to forever remember that moment, and he will expand and expound upon God's many laws. He will describe the challenges that he as a leader faced after Sinai and the failures of Israel that doomed them to desert wanderings. But Moses does not really speak about his own role in the redemption from slavery. As in the Haggadah, all of the events of the Exodus are entirely ascribed to God. Moses in Deuteronomy at the end of his life, looking back on his life and looking forward to Israel's future, presents himself as the teacher of Israel, and that is how he wishes to be remembered. Politics is profoundly important, and we will tease out the lessons learned from the formation of the Israelite polity when we study the book of Joshua. Military might in the battle against evil is essential, and we will learn the lessons of David's many wars on behalf of Israel against its enemies. But, as Rabbi Soloveitchik suggests, a society is defined first and foremost by its heroes, and children learn from a society's heroes what to truly value. If teaching, transmission, is Israel's central source of continuity, then we do not mention Moses in the Haggadah because we want the Jewish people to revere Moses first and foremost for what he did after the Exodus, teaching and transmitting the Torah to the people of Israel. As Rabbi Soloveitchik further noted, the traditional term for Moses is Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses our teacher, never Moshe Goaleinu, Moses our redeemer. And Moses as teacher takes central stage in Deuteronomy. Moses is first chosen as the political leader because of his ardent love for his people. And his eloquence is first made manifest in his defense of the people. But that love is unfortunately not always returned by the people. But as Moses prepares to die, and he speaks to Israel and teaches Israel, Israel recognizes how he has always been the teacher par excellence. And Moses becomes so beloved in the history of Israel that he remains forever Moses our teacher. So much so that a young boy named Joseph Soloveitchik can cry at the fact that Moses, his teacher, is unmentioned in most of the Haggadah. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, in his own reflection on Devarim, the many words of Moses, put it similarly as follows, quote, In the last month of his life, Moses ceased to be the liberator, the miracle worker, the redeemer, and became instead Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses our teacher. He was the first example in history of the leadership type in which Jews have excelled, the leader as teacher. Moses surely knew that some of his greatest achievements would not last forever. The people he had rescued would one day suffer exile and persecution again. The next time, though, they would not have a Moses to do miracles. So he planted a vision in their minds, hope in their hearts, a discipline in their deeds, and a strength in their souls that would never fade. When leaders become educators, they change lives. End quote. 
This, then, ladies and gentlemen, is the significance of the name of the book, Divarim, words, the words spoken with love for our people, words that made Moses the primary teacher of Torah in the history of our people. And the fact that Jews teach to their children and represent to the world the ideas that Moses taught is, in its own way, one of the greatest of miracles. Churchill, in his essay on Moses, reflecting on whether God utilized natural phenomena in the plagues and the many wonders that came about in the Exodus, concludes with this reflection, quote, At any rate, there is no doubt about one miracle. This wandering tribe, in many respects indistinguishable from numberless nomadic communities, grasped and proclaimed an idea of which all the genius of Greece and all the power of Rome were incapable. There was to be only one God, a universal God, a God of nations, a just God, a God who would punish in another world a wicked man dying rich and prosperous, a God from whose service the good of the humble and of the weak and poor was inseparable. End quote. Churchill is right, and Jews themselves to this day succinctly summarize Moses' achievement as follows. Moshe emet v'Torah to emet. Moses is true in his teaching. His Torah is true. It is Moses, our teacher, that we remember. The Moses that fully emerges in Deuteronomy is the one we celebrate above all. It is the Moses that teaches Israel in the last several weeks that defined his immortality with such an enduring impact that he remains the greatest Jew that ever lived. This is Mayor Soloveitchik. Looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.